Something that I feel is important related to the book of Mark is that a number of the early church fathers tell us that this gospel was written by a man who was named Mark. And this man, Mark, had spent a good number of years traveling the world with the apostle Peter as Peter's translator. You see, Peter spoke primarily Aramaic, but most of his audience spoke Greek or Latin. And so Peter needed someone to translate for him. And apparently Mark was an educated man who knew how to speak Aramaic and Greek and Latin. And so what we're actually reading when we read the book of Mark are Peter's first-hand recollections, recollections that Mark probably translated hundreds of times over the years. And my bet it was very easy for Mark to write down the stories that he'd repeatedly translated for hundreds of people. So when we get to a story like the one that we will be looking at today, we are actually hearing the memories of an eyewitness. And this eyewitness, Peter, was front and center when a woman secretly reached out and touched Jesus' robe, as we'll see happens in today's passage. And as I've been saying each week, this passage was given to us for two reasons. First, to tell us more about who is this man. This story will tell us more about what separates Jesus from regular people. But it will also show us in spades that even with all of Jesus' power and authority, he still has intimate knowledge of us as individuals. And he is concerned for us in ways that we can't even fathom. This story is just one of many in Mark's gospel that tells us that we are known. I got so involved in whoever that guy is that I just, I forgot to come up here to preach. And my wife also pointed out while he was up there that he needs a haircut, so. <laughs> Over the last uh, couple of weeks, the first two weeks in our Known series, um, we have looked at stories of Jesus giving new life to people in great need. In week one of our series, Marin told us the story of Jesus not only freeing a man from the misery of being possessed by evil spirits, but Jesus also changed everything about this man's life. And he changed everything about this man's family's life, and he even changed the lives of the people in his wider community. Jesus knew this man, and he gave him all that he needed. And then last week, Amy told us about Jairus and his desire to have Jesus save his young daughter's life. And in that story, we also saw that Jesus knew this little girl. He knew about her life and the circumstances surrounding her life in that moment, and he gave her exactly what she needed. And again, Jesus changed everything about her life and her future. He changed everything about his her family's life, and even the life of the wider community. What we saw in those two stories over the last two weeks, that Jesus has great power and he has great authority, but Jesus also knows us as individuals. He knows our hearts, he knows our circumstances, and he knows us deeply enough to 
give us more than we could hope for. And today we'll be looking at another story that tells us even more about Jesus. And in this story, interestingly, this story that we're looking at today took place right in the middle of what Amy talked about last week. And I just want to say that this is an, a common thing in the book of Mark, that he uses what we just call a sandwich story. He starts one story, and then he sandwiches another one in the middle, and then he comes back to what he started before. He does this often as a literary technique. We're looking at one of those today, and because that's what we're looking at, I think it's important that we start by reading what Amy, the beginning of what Amy talked about last week so we get a context of all that happened. So let's all turn to it together. It's Mark chapter 5, verse 21. And it's on page 833 in the House Bible. And while you're looking that up, I want to welcome everybody that's online. Say we're glad you're with us this morning. And before we start looking at God's Word, I'd like to pray for us. So if you'll pray with me just for a moment. Father, we are uh, thankful for your Word. We're thankful for its depth and power. And I pray that everything that I say today will be honoring to you and that our lives will be uh, changed by what you have for us in this passage. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Alrighty, we're in verse 21 of chapter 5, and we read this. Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. I just want to remind everyone that when it says he got into a boat again, he was actually on what is the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And when he was on that eastern side, he had just left a group of Gentile people who'd seen him drive out this legion of demons. And rather than their response being that they were so happy about this, what they were was scared to death of Jesus, and they said, go away, go away. We don't want anything to do with you. So Jesus has gotten into a boat with his disciples and left a group of people who want nothing to do with him, and he's taken about a two-hour journey across the Sea of Galilee back to the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And there, this is now all Jewish territory as opposed to Gentile on the other side. And when he gets to his Jewish homeland, he's greeted by what Mark calls a great crowd. And this just isn't a, just a large group of people who are quietly waiting around hoping to see Jesus. No, what the Greek actually tells us is that they're pushing and shoving. They're people who are trying to get as close to Jesus as they possibly can. This is a mess of people going crazy because Jesus has come back. And just think about this. In a matter of a couple of hours, Jesus has gone from a crowd that wants absolutely nothing to do with him to a group of people who can't get enough of him. You talk about an emotional shift all in just a very short time. And then we read this. Then a leader of the local synagogue whose name was Jairus arrived. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him, my little daughter is dying, he said, please come and lay your hands on her, heal her so she can live. Jesus went with him, and all the people followed, crowding around him. 
Now, last week, Amy gave us a close look at the story, a really good look at the story, and it's about Jairus and his daughter, and I don't need to go into the details. If you haven't heard it, go listen to Amy's message. It's wonderful, and it'll give you the details of what happened. But there is one detail that I do want to remind us all about, and that's this. Jairus was the leader of the local synagogue, and that meant he held a position of high honor in the local community. And this highly respected very religious man was so desperate and panicked that when he finally found Jesus, he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged Jesus to come and lay his hands on his daughter so that she might be healed. And we know from last week why he was so desperately seeking Jesus. His daughter was dying, literally dying. And we're told in Luke's gospel that it was his only daughter, and a daughter that we're going to learn, or you've heard it if you heard it last week, this daughter is only 12 years old. And when Jairus says to Jesus, heal her so that she may live, he uses the Greek word sozo. And it's a word that can mean both heal someone or save someone, and in this moment, desperate Jairus probably meant both. He's saying, please heal my daughter from her illness and save her from death. Notice, though, that Jesus didn't say anything to Jairus. He simply followed him. But then the story takes a huge turn in verse 25 when we read this. A woman in the crowd, and remember, this is still a crowd that Mark says is pressing against Jesus. So a woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors. And over the years, she had spent everything she had to pay them. But she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe, for she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Now, in this raucous crowd, we're told there is a woman who is also seeking Jesus, and she's also sick. And she was probably, most likely, also near death. She's a woman who, like Jairus, was desperate and had come to Jesus in the hope that he could bring her healing. Now, Mark does not tell us a great deal about this woman, but what he does tell us gives us a good deal of insight into her life. Mark simply says, a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years. That's all he says. He doesn't say exactly where this blood was flowing from, but we can assume from Mark's description that this flow of blood was connected in some way to her menstrual cycle, her system, menstrual system. And menstrual impurity was a big concern in the Jewish world. So much so that there is an entire section in the Jewish book of rules for living called the Mishnah 
that was written specifically to instruct men on how to avoid women during their time of month. In fact, that section in the Mishnah essentially said that religious men should try to avoid any contact with women whatsoever because you just never know what's going on. Okay? So here's the bottom line. A 12-year flow of blood would have meant she was continually, ceremonially unclean for 12 years. That meant for 12 years she would not have been allowed in the temple. That means for 12 years she had the knowledge that everything she ever touched became unclean. I'm talking clothing, furniture, cooking utensils, other people. Possibly worst of all, it meant for 12 years she'd been unable to bear children. And this was most likely during her best childbearing years in a world where the purpose for women's existence was to bear children. And as unimaginable as this sounds, this, this probably also meant that she had been divorced because it was expected of Jewish men to divorce their wives had they not provided at least one child in the first seven years of their marriage. Expected that they would divorce their wives. And this is, has led to some scholarly speculation, which I agree with, that the money that she had to spend on doctors was money that came from her dowry, which would have been, the dowry is money that her father would have given to her husband-to-be to save for her in case he divorced her so she'd have a little bit of cash to live on for a while while she tried to figure out what to do with her life after having been divorced. Something interesting about this passage that, uh, that what our Bible, your Bible, will call verses 25 to 28. In Greek, that's just one long sentence. And, and I think it's interesting that that sentence has seven participles in it. That's very unusual to describe this woman's condition. I'm going to give you a raw translation of those three verses. It goes like this. A woman... Many things suffering by many physicians having spent her everything and nothing having been profited, but rather to the worse having become. I think you get the picture. I think you get the picture. Hey, we even know what she would have suffered by many physicians. Physicians or doctors in their world were not what we think of today. Yes, they did some practical things like setting broken bones and they'd pull rotten teeth. They'd do some of that stuff. But they primarily majored on two things. First, what we would call herbal cures. Um, they knew about that kind of thing, herbal cures. And secondly, and this was the most important thing that doctors would learn, 
They'd learn the incantations, the secret words that you would say to force the gods to heal people. That was what a doctor was. Hey, we even have a list of the cures for women with menstrual flow issues. One of them was that they were told to drink a goblet of wine containing a powder compounded from rubber, alum, and garden crocuses. That'll cure you. Or you take a dose of Persian onions cooked in wine while the doctor chants, arise out of your flow of blood. Or you could carry a cloth bag around your neck filled with the ashes from an ostrich egg. And the, my favorite is this one, that the doctor would just sneak up behind you when you weren't looking and scare you. <laughs> These are the kinds of things she'd likely spent all of her money on and none of it had helped. She'd only gotten worse and like Jairus' daughter, it sounds like she too felt she was near the end of life. But she'd heard things about Jesus, and what she'd heard made her confident that were she to touch his robe, she would be healed. You see, there was a general belief in the first century world that a person's healing power, a holy man's healing power didn't just reside in his being, if you will, but that it transferred out into his clothing. And it was in his bodily fluids like a spit. And also, it was even in his shadow. It's interesting that in the New Testament, we see all three of those things used by God to heal people. And Mark even, he, Mark even tells us that she said to herself, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And guess what? The word she uses here to speak of her healing is sozo. The same word that Jairus had used. She wanted to be healed and saved from this life too. Just think of how desperate and courageous she was even to be in the crowd. Remember, she is unclean. Anyone who she might touch or who might bump up against her, they would have to go through the ceremonial process of becoming clean again so they could go to the temple. And she was a woman alone in a world where women didn't go any place without a man with them. And yet there she is, hiding somehow in the middle of this crowd and that's pressing in on Jesus. And she manages somehow to get close enough to him to touch his robe. And we read immediately the bleeding stopped and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of this terrible condition. She was healed and she knew it. And verse 30 tells us that Jesus knew something was going on too. It says Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? And his disciples said to him, look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? Well, the Greek is very clear that it says that Jesus knew immediately that the power had gone out of him. Now, just exactly what that means, I honestly don't know. But Jesus knew it, and he also knew somehow that he needed to immediately find out who had touched him. 
I mean, it's interesting when Mark says turning around in the crowd, Jesus asked, who touched me? His disciples say, it's like you're crazy, Jesus. This is, I can hear him, come on, Jesus, really, who touched you in this crowd? Jesus, don't be ridiculous. How are we going to figure that one out? But Jesus wasn't listening at all to his disciples. He was on a mission to figure out whose faith had caused power to come out of him. And in verse 33, we read this, And then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. Now, her fear, her trembling when she comes to Jesus probably came from two things. First, she could see that Jesus was serious about finding out who had touched him, and she probably figured that he was trying to find out who is this person that tried to stop me from going to help this important guy, Jairus, and heal his daughter. Who did this? And secondly, I'm sure that she was fearful that she would be discovered in the crowd. She was a woman who'd been unclean for 12 years. She was almost certainly known as a local pariah, and she not only touched a holy man, but who knows how many other men had brushed up against her in the process. But somehow, she mustered up the courage to tell Jesus what in the Greek, Mark literally says, she told him all the truth. All the truth about her long terrible 12 years of misery and isolation and how it suddenly had come to an end. And Jesus responds to her in verse 34 and says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Now, interestingly, Jesus doesn't respond to the details of her story at all. But what he does do is he immediately calls her daughter. Now, this word at the time was often used to speak of Jewish women broadly. They were all daughters of Abraham, but it was a term that was considered endearing. What shouldn't surprise us is that it is the exact same word that Jairus used when he spoke about his little girl, my daughter. And there's so much tenderness in this moment. It's highly likely due to the cultural norms of the time that this woman's father had had nothing to do with her for a good while, possibly years. She would have been an embarrassment to the family, and my bet is that no one had called her daughter in ages, let alone spoken to her in such an endearing way. And then Jesus told her something very powerful. He says, her faith had healed her. And he uses that same word, sozo, again. Yes, she had been healed physically, but she'd also been saved from the misery of her condition and the possibility of bleeding to death. This is a wonderful moment. Now, I, I can't tell you if there was actually power in Jesus' clothes, this is really, a, this is all a mystery to me. But I do know that she believed there was power in Jesus' clothes. Or more to, to the point, she believed that God was actively working through Jesus, even through his robe. 
And somehow her touching Jesus, it activated God's opportunity to both reward her faith and to give her new life. And we could talk about this, this unusual healing moment for a long time, about what it does mean and what it doesn't tell us about the healing work of God, and I'm not sure we'd ever come to 100% certainty about what literally happened in that moment. But one thing I am certain of is this, that when Jesus said to her, go in peace, he was saying something remarkable to her. Peace in the Jewish world meant a life of balance and life, of a life of goodness and wholeness and many deep relationships. And Jesus, by blessing her in this way, was giving her everything that her life had been missing for 12 years. Goodness, wholeness, relationships. And my bet is that no one had said go in peace to her for years. They might have said go away, but never go in peace. And Jesus adds this little phrase at the end. He says, and be freed from your suffering. You're freed from your suffering. The word translated suffering here is literally a plague. What this tells me is that Jesus knew exactly what this woman's condition had done to every aspect of her life. It was a plague that had touched every corner of her existence. And Jesus was saying to her, your plague, that which has caused suffering for you for 12 miserable years is gone. And you can imagine how new her life had become. I mean this in the most literal of ways. It is impossible to think of one aspect of her life that was not changed by this healing. You talk about new life. And one last thing. Why did Jesus feel it was necessary to make certain this woman's healing was announced publicly? Why didn't he allow her just to disappear into the crowd without making a spectacle of her? Well, there is a really good reason, and it has everything to do with Jesus knowing her and knowing exactly what she needed, knowing what would be best for her in the long run, and the reason has to do with her life in the bigger community. It had to do with her gaining peace along with healing. Jesus knew that if she had not spoken to him in front of this great crowd, her later claims of having been healed would have most likely fallen on skeptical ears. If you think about it, I mean, just think, how is she going to prove that this had happened? It would have to be through some very embarrassing ways of showing that this wasn't the case anymore, and it would have had to have been over a long period of time. Plus, I can just tell you that the news of her healing, had no one known about it publicly, would have spread through the community very slowly, through gossip most likely, if at all. 
But by Jesus calling public attention to her and having her publicly tell the story in front of a huge, great crowd that was all jammed in where everybody could hear what was going on, it made it so that everybody knew for certain that she had been healed. And they knew it what? Immediately. She could now immediately find her way back into the community and not have to worry about making other people unclean. She could immediately hold her head up and say, there, I am healed. She could immediately now be known as a woman who had been saved and healed and most importantly, could now have children. Honestly, this might be the the most life-giving aspect of her healing. Now, we don't have any idea what her age actually was. But my bet is that she was in her mid to late 20s and still both marriageable and able to have children. But even if this wasn't the case, Jesus knew her deeply enough to give her exactly what she needed in the moment from him. And what she needed was to be healed, but she also needed to have the facts of her salvation known by everybody right then. And you can be certain that the people that weren't there heard about this really quickly. I'll bet the news of her healing spread like wildfire through the locals. And every time that somebody heard about that story, her life got a little more free. You talk about new life. And at this point, we need to ask this question, why do we have this story? And maybe more importantly, how does this story relate to our lives? I think the first thing we need to do is remember that this story was given to us primarily to answer the disciples' question, the question that they asked when Jesus was in the raging, in the boat, in a raging storm, and they, he calm the, the wind and the sea by just telling it to stop. And the disciples asked, who is this man that the wind and the sea even obey? And, and over the last two weeks, we've seen some answers to that question. Who is this man? Uh, we saw that he was a man who could control the physical world, and he's a man who can control the spiritual world. And this week, we find out that Jesus is a man who can heal the brokenness of our bodies. But I want to be straight up about this. I have, I have seen healing that is nothing short of miraculous. Yes, I have. But I have also done many, many funerals for people who had deep faith in the healing power of Jesus, and yet they were not healed. I am not going to stand here and say, that healing is always connected to the depth of your faith. Truth is, I don't even know how we gauge the depth of other people's faith. And I also want to say that anyone who says that God's healing hand is limited by our faith's depth, I believe is standing on very dangerous ground. This is a difficult subject. 
All I can be 100% certain of is that in this specific case, this desperate woman who had endured 12 years of suffering somehow still believed that if she touched Jesus, God through Jesus would end the plague in her life. And when she touched him, she was healed. Does God still heal today? Absolutely. But again, this is a very difficult subject as I'm certain you can all understand. What I've come to believe is true, at least for me, is that I stand firmly in my faith, my belief that God can heal anything, and I am to hold on to the truth that nothing is impossible for him, even when he, for some reason, chooses not to heal. That's about the best I can do. But what I think might be the most important lesson for us today from this passage is this, that it shows us without question that Jesus is someone who knows us. He knows our hearts. He knows our circumstances. And he cares so much that he will stop even in the middle of responding to a very important person like Jairus, and he'll take the time to gently and tenderly give us exactly what we need. I know that this may sound like it's pie in the sky, and I, I also know from my own life, when I think about my own life, that I can't even imagine that what's happening to me would be important to the God of the universe, but, this story tells me this. If I seek Jesus, if I go looking for him, even when he seems hard to find, if I go after him, even in the midst of the chaos and the confusion of my life, if I am looking for him, he will find me. And if you trust him, if you have even a tiny mustard seed's worth of faith that you are known by him, he will, in his way, give you peace. He will give you salvation. He will give you exactly what you need. He will give you life. Life that proves you are known. That you are known by Jesus. Pray with me. Father, I am so thankful for this passage. It would have been so easy for this story to have not been in Scripture, to have been left out, simply because of the subject matter or who knows why. But I'm glad that you made sure that we have it. I'm also glad that it tells us that you are the God who can heal all things. And you are also the God who knows all of mankind, that you know each one of us as individuals. I pray that we'll live in that truth and that we'll hold on to the truth that we are known by you and that you love us more than we can ever imagine. And this is the heart of the gospel. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church, and the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us hub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. 
and make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.